0: Welcome to The Auditorium Podcast, a portal into the fringes of culture.
1: And now, before the news, a better chance to hear a classic episode of the British Biscuit Corporation's long-running sitcom, The Auditorium Couple starring Tony Hancock doing a poor impression of Dave Manfield and David Bramwell as a camp stereotype. Ooh, look at the state of this place, Boutfield, covered in biscuit wrappers and werewolf erotica novels and half-drunk martinis. It's like a pigsty. Your petty concerns mean nothing to me. Well, they will to someone. The vicar's popping round today. Oh! And you don't even have your trousers on.
2: <laughs> ah, well, there's a reason for that. My galloping baldness. My glorious head of hair is rapidly falling out. Doubtless brought on by the stress of having to be really, 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 really funny every fortnight for this non-profit-making podcast. <laughs>
1: You're blaming me now?
2: Yes, Dave, yes, I am. But don't worry, I've found a solution to my affliction thanks to Bob next door.
1: Oh, have you been speaking to the Flanagans again? What crazy advice has Bob given you this time? Last time you followed one of his airbrain schemes, you did actually physically lose an eye and a kidney.
2: Yes. Yes, I know every week through some unlikely scenario I end up following one of Bob's half-baked ideas that culminate in me losing a vital organ, but this time it's different. This can't fail at all. This is a no-lose proposition. Bob has the perfect cure for my galloping baldness.
1: This! A family-sized jar of super-red-hot chilli paste with added tiger balm straight out of the microwave. What on earth is that for? That's for
2: my freshly shaved bollocks. I rub it in liberally to my baby smooth plums. According to Mr Flanagan next door, it'll cure me of my affliction of galloping baldness forever. If it isn't hurting, it isn't working. That's what Bob always says.
1: Since when did horrific self-inflicted pain on a completely non-related part of the body help anyone medically?
2: (laughs) Oh, ye of little faith, wish me luck. On she goes. Ah!
1: Hang on, bend down, let's have a look. Nope, nothing yet. Right. Ah! I don't know how much more of this I can take. Quick,
2: pass me that highball glass of ice cold water, before my nuts explode. Here you go. Oh, that's a relief. Oh no, after all that chilli, they've expanded to an unfeasible size and have made a perfect seal around the rim of the glass. Quick, help me pull it off before I'm stuck like this forever.
1: Oh. I can't. I can't pull it off. You have to kneel down, and I'll pull from behind, like this. Oh, oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Oh, nearly there. Yes. Yeah. Keep pulling. Oh, that's good.
3: Hello. I'll let myself in. Oh, hello, hello Vicar. Vicar. Now about that church steeple restoration fund. Oh, good lords. You started without me.
0: When I was 19, I got my cock pierced. I was expecting a little bit more than that, but I mean obviously we're in we're we're from Brighton yeah we're in Brighton like every uh everyone and their their grandfather has their pierced. and at this point, I didn't have any uh piercings or any tattoos or any scarification, however, I did have an incredible crush on my older friend let's call him ben duffy so um and Ben was all kind of uh hardcore punk and like Dreadlocks and like effortless cool. Uh, in my mind, I kind of liken him to um, Rage Against the Machine, Zach de la Roca. You know, as if Ben wasn't cool enough, uh, he was also a piercer uh, at one of uh, Dublin's inner city parlours. And um, I just thought he was amazing. You know, I worshiped the ground that he walked on in that, in that, in that very intense kind of um, teenage attachment that you have to, to friends that perhaps you might have a homoerotic attachment to. And for my 19th uh, birthday, uh, Ben kind of jokingly suggested that perhaps I might like to get a piercing. And kind of said, well, you might as well get a cock piercing. So I suppose it was a part of me that kind of thought, huh. (laughs) okay," Uh, And I kind of maybe thought about the idea of maybe Ben putting his latex-clad gloves uh, on, on me, and I said, yes, 100% yes. <laughs> um, so the fateful day rolled around, uh, and I'm sitting in the waiting room of the piercing parlor, you know, sweating that cold sweat you get when somebody's about to jab you with a needle. Um, and, and my eyes kind of are casting around the room, and I'm looking for something to distract myself. And they fall on the, the, the list of piercings. Uh, let's call it the carte de maison. Um, and right down at the end, you get the, the genital piercings, right? So, you know, for 50 euro, you could have got um, the um, Prince Albert which is uh, the most common piercing. It was the one I was lining up for myself. But a little bit further down, ladies, you could have the uh, uh, Princess Diana, uh, which is actually uh, a couple of these vertical clitoral hood piercings for 75 euro. But right down at the end, uh, written in black marker, was the Bob Flanagan. <laughs> and under the price it said, ask staff for details. <laughs> So, of course, you know, in my kind of ang- anxiety-ridden condition, I kind of fastened on this, you know. And Ben comes in, of course, to kind of bring me to the table and so on. And uh, I said, so uh, uh, what's, a, what's a Bob Flanagan? Should I get a Bob Flanagan? And he kind of looked at me and he said, uh, like, looked me up and down. he was like, not tonight, Josephine. <laughs> And, of course, I was really ashamed, you know, and I didn't know what a Bob Flanagan was. I can't believe it. Uh, but I promised that at that point that I would go, go home and, and, and look it up. And what I found was that Bob Flanagan was a, a performance artist, an American performance artist, who uh, worked in, uh, mostly in Los Angeles in the 1980s and the 1990s. Um, and he became most infamous for a performance piece that he did in 1989 called Nailed. Uh, and Nailed ended with, his, uh, with Bob's flaccid penis and balls sewed up and nailed to a two by four. So, so you're getting the joke, right? So effectively, the piercers were like, well, if you want a Bob Flanagan, you better bring your own hammer, you know? <laughs> um, so, but in this, in the course of the, like finding out this stuff, I I got really interested in Bob's life, and it, it was so much more than nailed, right? So much more than this one really controversial um, performance. And Bob's life is this incredible, tragic, um, but also really funny, um, and and really inspiring story. And I, and that's that's the story that I want to share with you this evening. So. Uh, Bob Flanagan uh, was born on Boxing Day in 1952, and when he was born, he was diagnosed with the congenital condition of cystic fibrosis. Now, I don't know if any of you know what cystic fibrosis is, but um, briefly, it, it, it causes—it's uh, a congenital condition that is incurable, and that causes an overproduction of mucus in the lungs and the pancreas, um, and. CF sufferers are, in general, uh, they, they have uh, really bad digestive issues, they have severe respiratory problems, um, and, and a lot are infertile. And when Bob was born, um, the longevity for people with CF uh, was, was quite low, and he, it was expected that he wouldn't live past his tenth birthday. His sisters died uh, at six months and uh, 21 years. But when Bob died in nineteen ninety six he uh, was the l- the world's longest living survivor of the disease at forty three so how did Bob live to this like relatively ripe old age of forty three well, uh he had a lot of anti- <coughs> antibiotics um, he uh, had a lot of uh ventilators and respiratory uh, massage therapy, which effectively um, beat the mucus out of his lungs. Um, But if you'd ask Bob, he'd tell you that his longevity came down to masochism, uh, to his affection, lifelong affection, for being slapped, paddled, whipped, punched, uh, pegged, and, of course, nailed. This apparently was the saving grace of his life. But what is masochism? According to the, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual for Mental Disorders, which is the um, the uh, psychiatrist's desk reference for uh, mental disorders, uh, masochism is an illness. Um, and it was pathologized until 1994. And if you were a masochist, uh, Over a period of at at least six months, you had recurrent, intense sexual urges and uh, sexually arousing fantasies involving the act, real, not simulated, of being humiliated, beaten, bound, or otherwise made to suffer. Uh, And you've acted on these urges, or you are markedly distressed by them. So up until 1994, the DSM characterized masochism as a disorder. But when you look at Bob's, Bob Flanagan's life and you listen to his interviews and you, and you read his work, it becomes very clear that masochism was in some ways a, a means of gaining order, of, of taking control over a body that f- since he was born had been handed over to medical professionals to be uh, uh, prodded and pricked and, and brought into some kind of semblance of health, right so uh, and, and, and Masochism was something that he got into from a very early age. Uh, he, he recounts a story in, in one of his interviews of uh, as he was a, when he was a teenager suspending himself from like door frames of the house and like the, uh, secretly, and then the door frames kind of like warping, so nobody knew why the door wouldn't close. <laughs> Um, and also of, of locking himself in the bathroom and whipping himself with belts that are like studded with, with pins. But it, it took a long time for Bob to get from these very secretive kind of explorations of masochism to something like Nailed. Um, and he was, he was a very shy kid. He spent a lot of time at mass, like, like myself. Um, And he was a kind of Catholic kid. So there was a sense of guilt about all of these kind of um, uh, explorations. But writing was uh, Bob's other great vice. And uh, the turning point in his career came when he started to get involved with this um, literary arts center in uh, Los Angeles called Beyond Baroque. and it was with beyond uh, with the people in Beyond Baroque that he really found his community. And uh, so here, here's, a, here's a, uh, a picture of some of, the, some of the people that he met there. Uh, right here, you've got Amy Gerstler, who's a, who, uh, a poet and won the National Book Award a few years ago. Um, and here's uh, Michael Silverblatt, who runs a really successful uh, podcast on, on books called Bookworm. Mm-hmm. Um, but one person that's missing from this uh, picture is a, uh, a, a guy called Dennis Cooper. And so Dennis uh, was a uh, punk poet. Dennis Cooper was a punk poet and a transgressive novelist. Um, and he was really into uh, punk. He was friends with Paddy Smith back in 1974. Um, and even before punk made its way across to the West Coast, um, he really wanted to kind of energize the Lo- the Los Angeles scene, which at that point was quite was quite dead in terms of its kind of um, it was it was very attached to uh, beat poetics and and, and and beat lifestyle and so on um and and Cooper wanted to kind of transport punk to beyond baroque where he was um, where he managed the poetry reading series and before he took over uh, the poetry reading series was just poetry but what he did was he got uh, punk musicians uh, to come and, and, and play while people were doing readings. He, uh, he, would, he would ask um, artists to, to paint or to, to do uh, installations while some of the writers were working. And so what you found then at Beyond Baroque was this amazing punk-inflected scene uh, that included people like um, um, the punk band X uh, were formed at Beyond Baroque. Um, and I don't know if any of you know uh, Mike Kelly, uh, the visual artist. Uh, so Mike Kelly was was associated with that scene as well. But um, so it was it was with this very you know punk inflected community that that Bob you know as I say found his people, um, and he started to come out as a masochist. He included uh, masochistic imagery in his poetry. And he started to perform these pieces in, in, a, in, a, in a more gestural kind of way. Uh, but the saying goes that behind every great man is a woman with a ball gag and a pair of pliers. <laughs> and Bob wouldn't have become who he was without um, Cherie Rose, who is his lifelong collaborator and, and partner. And uh, it was with Cherie that they started this double act, which um, started with um, Cherie pelting Bob with food while he wore a gimp mask, uh, and then escalated to, to the infamous Nailed. Uh, but after Nailed, and I think it's, it's safe to say that Nailed was this kind of pivotal point in his career. After Nailed, things kind of got serious pretty quick. Uh, the Republican Bible basher uh, Jesse Helms uh, <laughs> took Bob and Cherie's performances as an example of of the de- degrading, demoralizing uh, artworks that were being funded by the, the United States government. Yeah, Helms's work to kind of like um, denigrate the the performances of Cherie and and Bob didn't quite work out the way he had planned, and. Bob and Cherie got extremely famous, extremely quickly. And uh, so, uh, Bob performed in uh, the metal band Nine Inch Nails' video for Happiness is Slavery. Um, Cherie uh, um, uh, was featured in this research volume, Modern Primitives, which is a pivotal um, uh, work. And um, Bob got his own uh, research volume called uh, Bob Flanagan, Supermasochist and which, which became a kind of a bible for a lot of uh, cystic fibrosis uh, sufferers. Bob and Cherie also started to be uh, included in, in this kind of wave of what became known as body art, and I think what makes uh, Bob, and, uh, Bob Flanagan and Cherie Rose's work stand out is the kind of, the way that they didn't lose their sense of humor. And there's one uh, segment that I want to show you from a performance which was um, recorded in the Kirby Dick documentary about the last days of Bob Flanagan called Sick, The Life and Death of Bob Flanagan, where Bob sings super masochistic Bob has cystic fibrosis to the tune of "Supercalifragilistic." OK.
4: So I wrote this song. I know the Disney people, if anybody, any Disney people are here, they will probably tell me to cease and desist and, and believe me, I will, but uh, not yet. <laughs> In my own time. <clears throat> Supermasochistic, barbacistic fibrosis. He should have died when he was young, but he was too precocious. How much longer he will live is anyone's prognosis. Super masochistic, barbacistic, fibrosess. I'm the little, I'm gonna die. I'm the little, I'm gonna die. I'm the little, little, I'm gonna die. Um, I'm the little, I'm gonna die. When he was born, the doctor said he had this bad disease. It gave him awful stomach aches and made him cough and wheeze. Any normal person would have buckled from the pain, but Super Bob got twisted, now he's into whips and chains. Um, to little, I'm the little laminadai, and you get the idea of that before I kill myself. Um, to little, I'm the little die. Forty years have come and gone, and Bob is still around. He's tied up by his ankles, and he's hanging upside down. A lifetime of infection, and his lungs all filled with phlegm. A C.F. would have killed him if it weren't for s Oh, super masochistic Bob, a cystic fibrosis. Super masochistic Bob, a cystic fibrosis. Super masochistic Bob, a cystic fibrosis. Super masochistic
0: Bob, a cystic fibrosis. In his obituary for his, uh, his dead friend, Dennis Cooper wrote that Bob was a complex man, um, that he wanted simultaneously to be Andy Kaufman, Harry Houdini, David Letterman, John Keats, and of course a character from a Marquis de Sade novel. But Bob is uniquely Bob I think and and there's something inspiring about his work and and about his life and I think that his life encourages, encourages us to rethink what a sick person is and what a sick person can do. I think that It also says to us, maybe look into those darkened corners of your psyche and perhaps you might find something pleasurable or joyous in what your culture says is perverse. And I think he also says to us, face the adversity in your own lives head on with a sense of humor. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. Bob Flanagan, poet, musician, CF sufferer. Super masochist, may all your sufferings like his ultimately end in bliss.
3: dear hester there on the subject of the life and death of, of bob flanagan have
2: you seen the documentary dave no i haven't it's a little bit rich for my blood oh, <laughs> yes 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 i mean it's it's it, you know it's a oh, really, hats off to him i just oh, it's ooh.
3: a it's a powerful it's a powerful story it's a, it's a really powerful story well, and, and, a, and he's a lucky li- man he's a lucky well he's not
2: lucky but uh, what what a thing to find that um, you know your favorite thing also <laughs> Helps you live longer. Yeah, you know, yeah. I guess
3: not many get that. And you have right. you been you've been researching a particular. I know that I know that you have <laughs> well, many would, strange interests. Yes, um, but you have a particular interest in that. Is it a Japanese? It cult is a Japanese
2: that... practice called. Uh, I don't think it goes on anymore. It only went on to the nineteenth century. It's called Sokushin Butsu. Um, it was a Buddhist practice uh, carried out in northern Japan, um, in Yamagata, uh, between the eleventh and nineteenth century. Um, uh, practiced by a, I can't really say this, but I'm going to try, Vajrayana uh, school of Buddhism, um, and it was a, it was a practice that included the monks dying, <laughs> but that wasn't really the point. The point was, is it was a, an act of uh, uh, enlightenment, and and what it was, it's it was, took about three thousand days or up to ten years where you had a very strict diet where um, everything was cut out of the diet apart from certain uh, pine needles and other sort of resins from trees and things like that. The the translation of the diet literally means eating a tree. Um, And uh, this slowly preserves the body and then you would starve yourself very slowly, stop drinking fluids as well towards the end. And uh, the monks would would die while while chanting um, in, in a circle. Uh and their body was were perfectly preserved. Kind of kind of the exact opposite of what Flanagan was
3: trying to do. Flanagan was trying to make his life Go on as long as he could through extreme measures, and these guys through extreme measures were trying to bring their lives to an end, but uh, but be perfectly preserved for.
2: Well, yeah, the idea was that you were reaching a layer of enlightenment, um, which put slash your... death <laughs> slash death. Yes, but you know, well, that, that's the problem, isn't it? The, any re, any religion or philosophy that hit, abjures the body and the desires of the body, ultimately. Um, you know, has a problem with life, doesn't it? And and that's the problem with, for me, Buddhism, is it says, well, you've got to transcend beyond all human desire and go to a place. But it's sort of anti-life, that, in a way, really, isn't it? Because, you know, life is made up of desires and wants and needs. And, and if you if you're transcending all of them, essentially... Your diet, your your and, and and to be honest with you, it didn't, it didn't. Uh, apparently, thousands of monks tried it over the years, but only twenty-four bodies have ever been found. But they are perfectly preserved. They require no. It's a self-mummification process that works perfectly.
3: Job done. So we're going to wrap up this episode with a feature biscuit, and just before we do this, this feature biscuit, because this this feature biscuit has got a slightly serrated edge, which I think if you were if you were to put it in your mouth too quickly, yeah. carelessly, you could potentially cause yourself a little bit of damage, couldn't yes. you? The biscuit is, what would you say, nice or nice?
2: I'm saying nice
3: because they're not nice. Uh, I'm saying nice because I was, I was brought up calling them nice biscuits. Now, I have to... I have to disagree with you i quite like a nice biscuit and i think it's largely down to the fact that there's quite a lot of sugar that's sort of glued onto the top of them yeah, so these are happy shopper ones i noticed so there's not even much sugar there, on no them. you're the right there, there is no sugar on these yeah. and it has the word you can just about make out the word nice mm. or nice yes um sort of stamped into it and a, and a slightly serrated egg you had a story
2: is, about the, the name niece, why, or nice well
3: why, why are they called that well Supposedly, they were always called nice biscuits. They've got coconut in as well, so they're mm. the only biscuit we know with coconut in, the from coconut macaroons. Yeah. macaroons. Mm. Um, well, the coconut's fairly subtle. In fact, if I'm honest, I can't really
2: taste any coconut. No, these have been passed near some coconut, but like I say, they're yeah, a happy yeah. shopper. Anyway, mm. carry on. Well, so... Um, first
3: of all, it's the most popular biscuit in Holland. Wow. Just going to say that. Wow. Just shows how dull the Dutch really are. Well,
2: no, I mean they have really good porn, don't they? So they have to lose out somewhere. <laughs> I'm guessing it's the biscuits. Wow. So oh. the story goes
3: that in 1860, when when the um, biscuit was um, invented, it was called nice. Yeah. Because because it tasted quite nice. Okay, so there was not a lot of thought went into that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what should um, we call it? Nice biscuit. Nice. Oh, these biscuit. are nice, aren't they? What should we call it? <laughs> Nice. <laughs> yeah. Well
2: done. Job done. Meeting over. Anyway, a few
3: years later, Queen Victoria took a whole suitcase of these over to Nice in France. You're right. And when she came back,
2: why? Why did she take a whole? She got, one. Must take. Did, it was a good joke. Did she? Was she being funny? I don't know. Why was she? Was
0: she? That was did it. have.
3: Do you know? Do you know what Queen Victoria? Queen Victoria. We say the most famous phrase associated with her was, um, "Where's your Prince Albert?" Not that. Um, Nice time though. We are not amused. Do you know where that came from? Prince Albert. (laughs) It came from her diary. And the most overused phrase in her diary was "Today I was most amused." Oh, really? The whole thing was turned right mm. Anyway, so, so she, she's a japes and a joke. She was, would've... she was arsing around with wordplay. Yeah. yeah, nice. And she, so it, it be, they became nice or nice biscuits after Queen Queen Victoria took a suitcase of them, just like when um, Ringo Starr, when, when the Beatles first went to India. Apparently, right. he took a whole suitcase full of baked beans because he didn't know if he would be able to eat the food out there. Right. And so, being English, she took. Uh, yeah, took some. Took what beans so you with saying
2: that, that everybody eats baked beans in India now because of Ringo Starr? No, no, no.
3: I'm I'm saying that the Queen thought that she might not like French food, so she just took nice biscuits. Oh,
2: as a way of surviving. Oh, is that why she took them? That's my theory. I'm not saying. I that's much prefer a fact. the Jolly Japes to uh, that she was going to surprise <laughs> everyone in Nice with nice biscuits. I like okay, that idea. and
3: it was the biscuit choice of the Nazis. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you oh. just
3: you've made that up.
2: Well oh. what? 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 Why? I don't know. What the, they said? <laughs> people have tea and cakes, and, nice and people
3: have nice biscuits. Probably because it sounded a bit like Nazi, Ni- not, uh, nice biscuits. <laughs> Nazi Nazi biscuit. to biscuits, Nazi um, biscuits. Anyway, look, but right. no, I, I made that up. Oh, right. um, it is the only biscuit that we are ever going to feature on this program that had its own punk anthem? Did it? Yeah. Which it?
2: Oh, so nice in Nice by the so Stranglers. nice
3: in Nice by the Stranglers. People think. It's a song about sex because a lot of those songs were about sex. Yeah. That song is actually when you read between the lines right. of the lyrics, yeah. it is actually about um, these happy shopper biscuits. Well, of
2: course, Golden Brown, uh, which a lot of people was think... about the bourbon. No, 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 it wasn't. It was about rich tea. It wasn't about heroin. A lot of people think it's about heroin. It's about the rich tea biscuit.
3: Wouldn't that have been Golden f- f- Fawn?
2: <laughs> it had to rhyme. Dave, don't don't, don't question me. Golden Brown doesn't don't rhyme. Don't question my <laughs> facts. Golden beige. Golden yes. beige would have been
3: better. Yeah, golden that beige. That be would a be a song about rich tea. Yeah. Um, do we have a competition? We did have a competition. It was... What was yeah. it? Oh, yeah, whether to, or not
2: we've... To, to decide whether we've done Nice Biscuits
3: before. So that the competition is, could could someone write in and please tell us because of our ailing <laughs> memories <laughs> whether, whether or not... We can't even be bothered to go back and listen
2: <laughs> to see if we've done it.
3: Whether we've actually featured this biscuit before. Right. And I guess a bit of a tragedy if we have because there's so many great biscuits out there. I but, know. But I've got to say, it, the, the Nice Biscuit is not the bottom of the pile for me. It's not the last one I'd take out of,
2: of, of a, an assortment of biscuits. Any Christmas assortment is the one that gets left unmolested in the box until about until about January the fifth. Well, you know what? If we lived together
3: in like an imaginary sitcom, yeah. we'd be um, we'd compliment each other because we we'd be taking different biscuits out of the box. If only now there's there was an idea. An imaginary sitcom. What would you call it? What about the what about the auditorium couple? The auditorium couple.
2: What would the theme tune sound like? I don't know. Something classy. Something like this. Nice. <laughs>
0: The auditorium is presented by Dr. David Bramwell and Mr. Dave Mounfield. The producers are Andrew Mailing and David Bramwell. Studio managers were Sam Walter and Hannah Schmidt. Discover more about the show and upcoming live events at oddpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oddpodcastuk and contact us through contact at oddpodcast.com. If you like the auditorium, please leave a review for us on iTunes. The Auditorium is a best-selling book full of fascinating stories about pioneers, outsider artists, adventurers, and counterculture heroes. It's published by Hodder & Stoughton and is available through Amazon and All Good Bookshops. Radio announcer was played by Sam Walter.